Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. We now have a Patreon page. Now, if you like this podcast coming out weekly, if you enjoy this podcast, the best way that you can help that uh, continue to be the case is to contribute to our Patreon. So Patreon is like a monthly subscriber service. So basically you could join for as little as a, a dollar a month. And you could join up to the Patreon page. Um, at some stage in the future, there will be extra bonus stuff on the Patreon page. But at the moment, it's just a way to support the podcast. So say you subscribe for a dollar a month, um, you know, which is really 25 cents an episode. So it's not a heap if you enjoy the podcast. Uh, you can sign up there, but you can sign up for more than that as well. Uh, maybe $5 a month, you know, kind of, you know, a dollar a dollar-ish an episode, uh, maybe you enjoy it that much. Uh, any of that support goes to um, paying James Fosdyke for his original art, paying Podcast Mike for helping me book guests and studios and put things together, and of course, uh, Mike Howley, our US producer, for weaving it all together and making it uh, possible to, for me to release it weekly. So uh, to pay all those people properly, uh, we need some money coming in. We have the occasional ad that runs, but it is not enough to cover our costs. So uh, at the moment, thank you to everybody who has already joined up to the Patreon, but um, we need to grow that to make sure that in 2020 we can bring the podcast out weekly as well. Um, uh, the other way that you can support me is uh, through coming to see my stand-up shows. Now this year, I really, for the first time in nearly 20 years, didn't do a lot of stand-up and I've spoken in, in passing about it on on different podcasts. Some of it had to do with my relationship to stand-up and and, and my relationship, my health and, and traveling um, and just, you know, some other things that I had on in my life. Uh, but I, I have been hinting at the fact that I, I had some plans for stand-up for 2020 and I do and I have some big plans for stand-up for 2020. Uh, so if you do want to see me do stand-up, there's going to be an opportunity to do that in 2020. Um, I've got a few really fun and interesting live things that I'm going to do uh, next year that I've been working on now for about, well, most of the year, uh, you know, if here and there and trying to work out exactly what it was that I wanted to do to get super excited about all that again. And uh, I think I've landed on the right formula to make all that work. So I'm very excited about what live touring plans I have in 2020 and the variety of things that you might get to see me do. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be creative. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. So uh, no announcements today, but uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, in the next few weeks, uh, bits and pieces uh, of that will uh, start to be revealed. And uh, before Christmas, most of it uh, will be out and about, I reckon. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, thanks for supporting it. Um, I'm glad that you enjoyed it if you enjoy it. And uh, today's episode uh, is an absolute cracker as well. Penny Flanagan might be the first sister, sibling that I've had on the podcast. I've had a, her sister, Kitty Flanagan, on before. Uh, Kitty has just released a new book, by the way, 488 Rules for Life. It's uh, so funny. I highly recommend it. It's one of those great books that you can just pick up and read a bit of, but you could probably sit down from start to finish and 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 read it all as well. It's it's just super hilarious. Uh, so check that out. And uh, another great book is Penny's book. It's called Surviving Hell. Uh, now, H-A-L, but uh, it could be really a double meaning. Uh, I won't give too much away. Penny and I will have a bit of a chat about it on this podcast, but I do also highly recommend uh surviving hell so maybe go to the bookshop and you can have your your flanagan sisters double pick up kitty's book and penny's book uh read them both so i was i was very pleased to have penny on the podcast and i uh, hope you 
enjoy this interview with her. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's guest might be might be the first sibling that I've had on the podcast. I don't think that I've had, I, I have done absolutely no research before I've jumped into just a complete and utter supposition off the top of my head, but I believe maybe the first uh, sibling that we've had on the podcast. Uh, somebody that I don't know as well as uh, some of the other people that I've had on the podcast Uh but I am very much looking forward to this because I've been an admirer of hers uh, for a very long time. Uh, I'm not going to give too much away, but we might as well just jump in and then we can get to all that. So uh, firstly, this is how the podcast starts. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Penny Flanagan. Hello, Penny Flanagan. Hello. Uh, how do you describe yourself, Penny Flanagan, when people ask you to describe yourself? Oh, it's very difficult. Um, I've just settled on writer-musician just recently. Okay. Writer slash musician? Yeah, I yeah. guess so. Yeah. Uh, also I should mention the, the sibling thing, which is that you are the sister of Kitty Flanagan. Yes, yes. that's right. And perform with her in, in her shows. You were referenced on the previous podcasts, uh, something oh, that I have told people and I've told, uh, Kitty many times. I don't know if she's ever passed it on to you or not, <laughs> but I, uh, we have met, uh, we met a very, very, very long time ago. I don't know if you know this story, but, uh, it was at the university of Canberra. Uh, you were uh, playing at the, I was at, I was at the University of Canberra and you were playing your music at the University of Canberra bar. And I can't remember specifically what it was, but I think that your gig had coincided with it being a long weekend or some, some reason everybody was out of town. It was one of the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was, sounds just absolutely right. <laughs> what would happen to me? Yeah. Uh, so for some reason, like, you know, the, the bar that normally was, stiff. was steaming for, like, <laughs> but you were like, your songs were all over Tri Triple J at the time. Like it was a great gig. I was so excited that, you know, and you came and you played and you were fantastic, but most of the people at the university <laughs> were not there. So oh, after the so gig, difficult. we ended up playing uh, pool together. Uh, billiards. They had they used to have pool tables up the back of the University of Canberra bar, and you and I played a game of pool together. This would have been thirty thirty years ago, I suppose. Well, not quite thirty years ago. No, it's not. Uh, that. That's a bit too. Were long, you first year uni? I reckon I was first year, first year or second year uni. And I, if my album was out, I would have been about twenty three. Yeah, and so I probably was nineteen or something. And we played pool, and yep. I think you have told me this story at um, a comedy when I met you backstage at a comedy festival thing and I just had absolutely no recollection of it and I was appalled that I would have no recollection of it. But then I don't know whether I've constructed a memory since then. Yeah. But I do <laughs> like the empty the empty bar really <laughs> strikes me as being true. And I do remember maybe playing with some students and would you have been a really young nineteen year old? I mean I guess I was uh, yeah, I'm yeah, like I'm I would have been eighteen, nineteen. I would yeah, young. Yeah, so I have a memory of some very young students and playing pool. Um that's it. Well, all the questions in today's interview are going to be about that day. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was a pretty bad pool player too. Oh, look, I don't, I, I can't remember the quality of the pool. No, I was a great fan of yours. I, I had never heard uh, Triple J before I moved to Canberra because we didn't have Triple J in the country back when I was growing up. And then I'd been introduced to your music through Triple J and like absolutely loved it, thought it was fantastic, which was 
why I was one of the few people who stayed around in Canberra <laughs> that weekend. So tragic. And just being in an empty bar after your own gig and playing pool. It's just, it's quite sad. Uh, so you say writer, musician uh, these days. Is that because writing has moved in front of music as a priority in your life? Yes, definitely. Because um, musician is kind of, it's a very big part of who I am and who I have been, but I don't write songs anymore. So. Oh, at all? No. Is that shocking? It is a little shocking because mm. I imagine that writing songs, and I, I really, I've, having never written a song, mm. uh, I, I just imagined that writing songs was one of those things that you did forever, regardless of whether... You know, whether they were songs that would go on an album or songs mm. that would... I just thought that once you had the ability to write a song... I think if I could write a song, yeah. I'd always be writing songs. Well, that's what everyone always thinks. It's kind of like having magic powers and not using them. So people feel a bit pissed off if you just decide not to use them anymore. You know, it's like Samantha in yeah. Bewitched. She just decides <laughs> not to use her magic. And it's like, come on. Come on. Just, just a little twitch. Come Give on. us a little song. Come on. <laughs> but I think it's kind of, for me, writing songs was very much an early something you did in your early 20s, like it's quite um, self-absorbed and it's a whole mindset. Like you have to live, your whole existence has to be based around how am I going to get a song out of this, you know. And it's very, it, you're just thinking about yourself all the time. So as you get older, it, I just, my emotions just aren't that interesting to me anymore. <laughs> so You know what though, that's a really fascinating thing to say because... I often, I'm taking my first step away from stand-up that I've had in the last, and it's only a half step away. Yeah. You know, I've still kind of got my toe in the water. I'm still doing the occasional gig, but I'm trying to have, I did the comedy festival and then I'm trying to have a break basically until the next comedy festival. Yeah. So a year really without being totally obsessed every minute yeah. of my day with stand-up comedy. Yeah. And it's the first time that I've done it in quarter of a century, you know, and, and, and like I really, for over half of my life, I've done a new show yeah. every year. And that means that I'm constantly, and the thing that really led it to me, me to that trying to step away was the very thing that you're talking about, which was, I was just sick of thinking about myself. Sick of your thoughts. Sick of my own thoughts. Yeah. Sick of thinking, assessing every single moment as if it could be something for the show. Yeah. Constantly trying to work out what my theme of the year was. <laughs> you know, I know it must be exhausting. Well, it turns out it is. It turns out having stopped away, from, like it, well, I didn't know how exhausting it was until I stopped doing yeah. it. Yeah. And then I suddenly realized how much mental energy and physical energy that I got out of not constantly thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot of pressure too, to just have to think of your life as just content all the time. So yeah, but songwriting in particular is a very, for me, was a very early twenties headspace. So I just couldn't go on with it. I mean, I love talking about it now because I don't do it anymore. Um, but And I've tried to kind of write songs, but I just don't have the impetus. Like when I was in my early 20s, I really needed to write songs. Like it was just a need. It wasn't It wasn't about just, oh, I should write some songs so I, I've got some content. It was, I just really need to do this emotionally. And so once I didn't have that need anymore, it just seemed really um, false. Speak to me about uh, that idea of where a song comes from because I, I, I like that idea that, you you might be able to be more reflective on this and speak about it in a more detached way as someone who's not writing songs yeah. now than those who are still in the process. Because I know sometimes when you're picking apart the process, when you're in the process, you almost don't want to think about no, it as much. No, that's right. Yeah. But where did songs come from for you? What was the process? So 
what I've figured out about songwriting is it really is, um, it's a form of mindfulness. So you know how mindfulness is, you've got to sit with an uncomfortable feeling and you've got to almost wallow in it and sort of, and then examine it from every angle just so that you can be rid of it. Like you shouldn't shut off your feelings. You've got to like really feel them fully and, um, not analyze them, but you've got to look at them from every angle and why am I feeling like this and, you know, what is this feeling? And that's what songwriting was for me. It was like if I had something that was bugging me um, emotionally, I had to write a song about it. And once I'd written a song about it, it was out of me and it was gone. It was kind of a way of getting rid of negative emotions, I guess, which is why all the songs were quite negative. (laughs) 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 And, you know, I'd always get that feedback from record companies you know can't you write something up and happy and it was like well I can't because it's not why I do it so and I think that was part of what made me not want to do it anymore because it becomes about content and about what the market wants and you know what we can sell rather than what I needed to do what about uh the reliving of that so if you're using it as an expression of something uncomfortable Mm. to get it out there I'm fascinated by this because I did this show about I got arrested and I did this. I loved it. I did this show. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you mean the show rather than the, the fact show, that I got arrested. I loved it. But, uh, you know, I turned that into a show. Mm. Uh, but what I found was it also then meant to do that show properly. Yeah. I had to go back to at least a version of how I was feeling in those moments and to repeat that constantly, to go through yeah. something that was quite traumatic to go through, even yeah. though I, hopefully I turned it into something funny, I still felt like took an emotional toll on me to yeah. go back to that place. Yeah. So you had to inhabit that space mm. every time. Um, I actually really enjoy that. And I think it's probably, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but um, even playing the songs now, I just really, I really enjoy, it's like a, an oral diary almost just it's like time travel like you're just going back to that space and because it's about my early 20s you sort of get really nostalgic about your early 20s at this age so I kind of just go right back there and I'm right in it and it's I did a couple of gigs with the, my first band was Club Hoy was like a gig a band I was in with another girl and that was when we were really young so it was like late teens early 20s so all the songs we wrote then were just like just about stuff you worried about then, you know, which now you just go, wow, girls, just, you know, settle down. <laughs> but so, but you, you just re-inhabit them. So at all the gigs, it was really weird. Like the past is like right in front of your face. Like it's right there and you're right in it. And we'd be rehearsing and I would just be way back in 1991 as we were rehearsing and sort of almost forget lyrics or, you know, couldn't remember what we just agreed we were going to do with the song because I'm just right back there. Like, it's pretty amazing. Like, I do like that aspect of it that I can just revisit the past emotionally. I love it. I find it really cathartic. What's it like when you're a a, a young person? Like you said, you, you're sort of late teens, early 20s, mm. and then suddenly your music gets played on the radio. What's that like as an experience? It's amazing. You feel godlike. So I was at uni when uh, the first Club Hoy single came out and people would be playing. I was doing studying architecture and so we had these design studios and everyone would always be playing Triple J in the design studios. And I remember I came in one day and everyone went, they're playing you on the radio, they're playing you on the radio. It was just like, wow, this is like, this is amazing. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. It is exactly how you would imagine it. It's great. (laughs) I can't get enough of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I can imagine that, right? That's what it feels like. It feels like you're suddenly like, oh, I made that. And That's it's like my your song. best self. It's like you're suddenly you're your best self and everybody sees you different, differently suddenly. Like all of a sudden you're kind of on this, you're just on another level and you just, yeah. And for people who are, you know, for someone who's sort of a little socially awkward and, you know, all writers and musicians are like that. But to suddenly be able to be elevated up and be seen in your best light is just great. So I do miss that. And I miss that about being on stage too. I'm just, is you're, that not, your you're not hearing chip? that. You're not, no, you're not. Okay. So I reckon it's the headphones. That's fine. I just didn't want to, like, you know, spend the whole, you know, I know. That's spend a whole the hour. Like, and then I was like, <laughs> or, you know, is it going to be a problem? Or, yeah. I can take the headphones <laughs> off. It's okay. We can, we can live with that. Um, that means my beanie can come off as well. So everything's fine. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I, the, the beanie protects from the, what I get is like a, one of those Bob Hawke style ridges in the middle of is my head right? based on the, oh, the headphones. Oh, the headphones. <laughs> so I uh, wear the beanie instead. Uh, all right. So, uh, I asked people on this podcast, do you have a philosophy of any kind? Do you have a philosophy? I do have a philosophy and it, I've sort of adjusted it in the last year or two. It used to be just do it. I know that's a Nike mm. ad, but it was. Did you change ad. based on a trademark? No, I've cha- I've adjusted it, but I've I've adjusted it based on something from Mad Men, um, and now it's just do the work, because I think having a past, my past as a musician, you get so much affirmation as a musician. Like you just get so much feedback from an audience, and just constant affirmation. And moving into writing, you just get nothing. Like you just get nothing. <laughs> so I've had to really adjust to that and just like if you want to be a writer, you've just got to sit down and write. Like don't focus on, you know, how people are going to love it or what people are going to say about it or how it's going to, you know, make everyone love you or whatever. Just sit down and write. Just do the work. So that's my philosophy now. So it's an incredible difference and I don't think that some people would understand how big a difference it is. Like often people say to me all the time, oh, why don't you write books? And I was like, I like to write something and then go and show it to people yes. and they'll tell me one way or the other whether it's good or not. Yes. And then I will adjust it. Yeah. It's like the idea of me sitting around for six months or 12 Horrific. months writing something that I have no idea whether people are liking or not is terrifying to me. And just being in your own, existing in your own head for that long is a little terrifying. Um, but yeah, but not getting the feedback is is difficult. So, yeah, so I've just had to adjust it to just sit down and do the work and, you know, just keep keep doing the work, like especially with this book now. because Which it's is called? Surviving How. Um, it's a very small publisher, so I kind of knew it wouldn't, you know, it's not going to set the world on fire. But but that's okay. Just sort of move on and write the next one. Like just keep keep writing. Now, uh, Surviving How, give me a, uh, just to get set the scene, yes. give me a, how long did it take you to write? Um, it probably, the first draft was probably, was pretty quick. It was about three months, but then you have to not look at it for a while and then go back to it and, you know, work through it and adjust it. So overall with, you know, not looking at it and redrafting it probably a year. And then it took about six years to get it published. And then once I got a publisher, I had to rewrite a few things as well. So there was another sort of three months of rewriting um, and restructuring it. So it's a lot of work. So I'm, f- I'm fascinated by the work that goes into it because d- did you have a particular method of writing? Like, uh, you know, did you dedicate a certain amount? I've got friends who are authors who are like, well, I, I get up at this time and I write until yeah. midday and then the rest of the day I'm not writing. And there's other people like, no, I write when I'm inspired or it all came out in two weeks and then I had mm. to just spend the rest of it 
you know, editing and researching? What's, what's your method of creativity in regard to writing? Well, my method now, when I wrote Surviving Howl, I was kind of really in the zone of it. So I think, I can't even remember, I think I wrote every day in short bursts. I tried to get a chapter out a day and I knew what I was writing towards. So I kind of really had a destination. But now my method is to just like, because the empty page is the blank page, is the hardest thing. And so what I've learned is you just have to sit down and just fill the blank page. And even if it's fucking rubbish, you just have to do at least an hour every day of filling the blank page. And there's always something in it. Like you'll always be able to go back and find something and if you've filled the page then the next day you can go I'll just go and have a look at that and you know edit it and it doesn't seem like work almost so that's my method to just write every day in short bursts. Do you like writing? When it's working I really love it but you know like everyone when it's not working it's just hideous it's hellish so but yeah when it's working I do get completely um, absorbed by it and I can sort of look up and at five o'clock and realise that I haven't put the dinner on and, you know, I haven't picked up my kids. And so I have to be actually really careful that I don't get too sucked into the vortex of it. And also after a week of, you know, writing, you know, fiction, you look up and realise you haven't earned any money that week. You just kind of of come out of it and go, oh, that's right, I've got to pay the mortgage. Like I've got to now chase some, you know, commercial work and some freelance work so that I can pay my bills. So it's such a, it's a difficult balance with fiction. What about uh, revisiting something that you'd originally conceived six years ago? What's that like? Because that is you know fantastic. the idea that you started it, you know, you were a different person when you started yeah. writing the book. Um, it's actually quite good because you get really fresh eyes on it and you sort of have this realisation, you go, oh, it's actually quite good. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's good. Because when you come out, you go, oh, maybe it's rubbish. But mm. if you don't look at it for a while, you go, oh, no, it's quite, it's quite good. You know, I can put words I'm together. Actually, I'm actually reasonably interested in this story. <laughs> I'm compelled I'm by this. Where is this going? <laughs> what a brilliant author this is. Destination. <laughs> um, what about external feedback? You talk about the idea of getting a publisher and then, you know, having to rewrite things. Mm. How are you at dealing with that process? Really of- terrible. I take everything really personally and I take everything as a personal attack on my talent. <laughs> <laughs> So that's why my philosophy has had to become just just do the work. Like, you know, don't take it personally. Just if you need to rewrite it, just do the work. And with Surviving Howl, it had a um, the original structure, which I just love, flashback structure. Publishers and editors fucking hate it. They hate flashback structure because it um, interrupts the momentum of the narrative. So I got, uh, I had two people tell me, oh, you know, we really like it, but the flashback structure is really interrupting the narrative. So, you know, that's why. And I was like, well, I love flashback structure. So you can all, you know, because it's sort of Freudian flashback structure. It's like because of this in the present, it's because of this in the past. So I just really love it. And then when the third person said it to me, I went, you know what? Maybe you need to just listen to the feedback and restructure it. So um, I just went back and rearranged it chronologically, which meant I had to write a few more linking pieces. So that was worth doing. Just listen to the feedback. If it happens three times, listen to the feedback, I reckon. Oh, that's a good bit of advice. So yeah. how do you um, make, how do you work out, because in that example, for mm. it's like, how do you work out, I'm sure that uh, Christopher Nolan got some notes on Memento that was like, you know what, <laughs> like if you just did this in I know. order. how do you work out, maybe would, I'm just a genius. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but how do you know when to fight that fight and not to fight mm. that fight? How how do you know when you're like, yes, 
I get what you're saying about forward mm. momentum and blah blah blah. Yeah. But I'm an artist and I'm a writer <laughs> and I'm trying genius. to, you know, this is the, uh, this is a, it's got a Freudian flashback <laughs> thing. The things in the past relate to that? the things in the future. Can't you see the levels I'm working on here? Um, I think when it was said three times by people in the industry, and I realised it was something that was stopping it from being published. Mm. I just thought, well, how about you know, if you pull it apart. Just, you know, the bit, the version that you love is over there. That's always going to be there if you don't like it when you pull it apart. So just have a go at pulling it apart and putting it back together and see what happens. So I just thought, yeah, three times was my thing of maybe I should listen. You could do a director's cut like they do with movies, you know, when they bring out the, this is actually the Francis Ford Coppola (laughs) version that he really wanted to make. Yeah, I would love to do that. 400 extra pages, (laughs) mostly Freudian flashbacks. It was really tight, you know? It's really tight. I loved it. How much do you think that uh, what has happened in the past, just in a general life sense, Mm. how much of what has happened in the past informs how we are? now in that way i think it's everything i'm just obsessed with it i'm obsessed with what has happened in the past why am i like this it's because of something that happened in the past i love it it's my favorite thing about and how do you explore that do you just explore that in your life or do you talk to somebody about like what has happened in your past do i talk to a therapist I, i answer it however you want to answer it um i probably explore it in writing is what i do i'm always looking back at you know what the patterns of behaviour that are formed and why they formed and, you know, what that means. So, yeah, I probably explore it in writing, I guess. And are you exploring it with a view to resolve it or are you exploring it with a view to explain it? You're exploring it just for the sake of exploring it because exploring it is fun. I'm exploring it to try and understand why I behave the way I behave so that I can behave better. And not be so reactionary, I think. Re- what does reactionary mean? Well, just reacting to, to reacting to bad things that happen, like just going, "Oh my god, it's terrible!" Like just reacting to things instead of, you know, processing them. Just going, you know, if someone says something bad about you or thinks something bad about you, it doesn't. You don't have to react to that in a, an hysterical way. So, yeah, I just have real. I have very extreme reactions to things. So I guess looking at why I'm like that helps me to not be so hysterical. So your immediate reaction to things, it can be extreme? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Even this answer will. Yes, it can be. Yes. Why are you asking me so many questions in this interview? (laughs) Oh, yeah. The first, you know, zero to ten. First thing is defensiveness. You know, everybody hates me is my, you know backstop, you know, my fallback position. Okay, well, that's it. I guess everyone hates me. So, yeah. And do you have insight into where that has come <laughs> into from? If, whether people hate me or not? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. Just maybe just from being an overthinker and just living inside my own head all the time. I don't think everybody does hate me. Um, but that's just my fallback position when something goes wrong. I mean, I... Yeah, I I don't know you, but I I I don't like you. No. I can see why nobody likes you. Uh, no, but why would you? Why? Well, okay, let's let's go back. Mm. Let's let's have fun with this. I I like the idea of exploring what came before. So, tell me about your experience of you know growing up. Like, 
what, what were you like at high school? You know, obviously you were a musician and like in bands, you know, at the end of high school. Yeah. So what was music the focus of your world as a high school kid? Um, yes. Finding some expression to do with music was the focus of my whole adolescence. And I didn't really find it until I met Julia, who was my songwriting partner in Club Hoy. And we kind of found this alchemy with the two of us where we could kind of, where you're not being yourself, but you're being this thing that's just so much better than, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And in your adolescence, that's such a magical, powerful thing because you don't have to be your awkward self. You are this entity that is the two of you. So once I connected with her and she wrote songs and she sort of showed me how to write songs and I never realised you could write songs. Um, and once I found that voice... Yeah, that became who I was and it was, yeah, a really amazing epiphany for me because before then I was sort of into, <laughs> I was into show tunes, you know, I really loved musicals just for the fact that the, you know, the lead character is just expressing themselves in a song about their feelings. I just love that. Um, and so I thought that's where I wanted to be. But then once I met Julia and realised you could write your own stuff, that was, yeah, that was an amazing, just opened up a world for me. Had you seen musical theatre? Had you, like, is that how you yeah. got intoxicated by it? Because I remember, I'm a country kid, and yeah. my mum, yeah, loves live performance, yeah. you know, in, like as in to consume it, and she loved a musical, you know, yeah. loved, so loved to put all the kids in the, you know, the Tarago and drive us all down to Melbourne to go and see a musical. So my first experience of, you know, show business, you know, seeing live performance mm. was, was seeing musicals. And what I, did you see? What was your first musical? Uh, so, well, this was, we're talking Andrew Lloyd Webber was a yeah. big, you know, period. So I think first one might have been Cats, probably. That's a good. Cats? Yeah, I think Cats was and the you, first And you one. vibed with Cats? Yeah, well, I like Cats and. <laughs> <laughs> it's, got, it's got lots of good songs in it. Yeah, it has got good songs I, in I, it. I, if you think that Cats is, is going to put us off, I know the second one was Starlight <laughs> Express. And wow. Starlight Express didn't put us off musicals. So, wow. Yeah, what got it, through that. Saw, so not so not the classics like Annie or... Never saw Annie, saw Les Mis. So I've seen Les Mis a bunch yep. of times in different places. I've, I went and saw that in London and I went and saw it in New York as well. Uh I, we went, we saw Hugh Jackman in uh, Beauty and the Beast. Is that the one that oh, he was in? Oh, was he in, I know what he was, was the one? in. He was in um, we saw him at the Princess Theatre. I remember that. It was yeah. at the Princess Theatre and I reckon it was Beauty and the Beast. No, it was um, the one about the old woman. Um, I'm ready for my close up now, Mr. DeMille. Oh, no, there was that as Sunset well. Boulevard. But he was, was no, he no, he was in Beauty and the Beast as well. Yep. Uh, which we saw him in. He famously told a story about uh, one night, this was his commitment to performance. One night he had to hit the high note in the song and he needed to go to the toilet and he knew that he could either hit the high note, uh, but he'd piss himself on stage or he could not go for the high note and, you know. He pissed himself. And he pissed himself because he, he cares. He's I the, love that. He's the world's greatest entertainer <laughs> and he's willing to piss himself to I hit the high I, note. I don't think I would be willing to piss myself. Well, that was going to be you? my next question. Would you be willing to piss yourself? <laughs> no. I actually ran off stage once um, when Julia and I were playing. It was just the two of us at the Harold Park in Sydney. And I just was busting to go to the toilet and I just turned to her and said, I've, I've got to go. I'm sorry. And I just ran off stage to go to the toilet and she was just left there just going, um, sorry, everybody. <laughs> Have you ever had to uh, go to the toilet when you've been performing solo? No. No. I think there's something amazing, you know, when you talk about how the human brain works. Mm. 
something amazing about the fact that if I'm doing a solo stand-up show, I've never had to stop it. Like I've never had to go to the toilet or whatever. But if I've been involved in a podcast or something else when there's other people and your mind knows that you can go to the yeah. toilet, like at the end of the day, someone else can cover while you're not there, then you'll go. Then you'll go. Yeah. But if, if you don't have that option, your body goes, well, I guess we... Don't have that uh, option. Yeah, I guess we're not going to the toilet tonight. Yeah. And, I don't, and I don't have to hit that high note, so it's fine. I don't. <laughs> uh, talk to me about that idea of collaborating with other people because, you know, you talk about finding a bit of that teenage voice, you know, mm. the power of working with others. You know, you have worked with your sister on, you know, we, you, you and her doing her shows together. Her shows? Did yeah. Did say that? Is shows. that okay? Yeah, yeah it's well, her show. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's her, her name. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's good. Um what what's that process like the process of collaboration versus the process of doing something by yourself so the process of collaboration with um kitty is that i'm the support person so it's you know whatever she needs i will provide it and i kind of really like that role um so that process is i usually she'll kind of say okay we need a song about this and will give me a, a really vague brief that makes no sense. Um, and so <laughs> I will go, okay. And then I just kind of come up with a few chords and try to sort of, you have to just be there in the moment when she's about to come up with the idea because she's a real 11th hour idea person. Like she leaves it all to the last minute and she almost like holds her breath underwater until she comes up with an idea. So you have to be there in that moment. So you just have to sit in the room with her while she's having her thoughts and try to keep up. So, and then I usually just come up with a structure and tell her what the rhythm of the words should be. And then she goes, okay. And she goes away. And then she comes back to me with <laughs> words that don't fit into the <laughs> <laughs> And I always have to say, um, are you listening to the meter? Uh, you've just stuffed too many words into that line. There is not that many beats in the bar. So then we sort of go back and forth on that and adjust it. So... Does that answer the question? It does. Oh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm really interested in collaboration in general. Like I, I find it a fascinating topic. I don't know if it's something, I mean, I've, I collaborate on a whole bunch of things, but I'm constantly challenging myself, yeah, between the nature of being a solo artist yeah. and the nature of, you know, what you bring to collaboration and how, you know, like you said, sometimes your job is to be. It's easier when the dynamic is really clearly delineated so with kitty stuff it's like she's the boss whatever she decides whatever she says goes i'm kind of the boss in terms of the musicality of it so i can kind of pull rank there but in terms of the words and the jokes it's like so that it's kind of easy in that way when i worked with julia in club hoy and we were kind of equals that was really difficult and that presented a whole lot of problems after a while because you know who's in charge here who gets to take the lead, who has to sit back. That push and pull of um, creative egos was really difficult. So I find it easier to just, I find it easy to collaborate with Kitty because she's the boss and that's that's a given. So, What about the idea of working with family in that way? Is there, is that a, I mean, I asked her about the same thing, but is it a, a positive or is it, does it create a, a set of its own problems? Is it a combination of both? Yeah, there's an overlay of big sister, little sister that can get tangled up in it. Um, but I kind of have this thing where, because I work with friends a lot. I really love, I've just realised in, you know, middle age that the secret to happiness is working with your friends. 
because you spend because I love work so that's kind of my that's my life and that's my world and I want my friends in that world so my way of dealing with what you're talking about is to just separate church and state and so when it gets tricky it's like okay well that's that's not my sister talking that's you know kitty the performer talking so I'm not going to take it as that my sister doesn't care about me or whatever so I just sort of separate out the two uh what about the the aspect of it and forgive my clumsiness in asking this Mm. but I'm interested in it which is that you know you through your music you know were famous before Kitty was famous and then Kitty comes along and you know is you know has her own you know role and career is there a sister rivalry thing there was that a complicated thing to sort of realize oh hang on look at Kitty's like a big comedy star now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not really because it was a, they were two different worlds. Mm. And I think because I saw how much work she did to get there and because it took her, it did take her a long time to get where she was, I want to say appreciated for how good she was. Um, I think that's fair. I I think that's fair by the way. I just kind of went, yeah, she's worked for it. And I feel like with music, I kind of didn't do the work to um, to have that longevity in that career, whereas Kitty kind of really did the work. And she stayed with it and just kept doing it. It is funny, isn't it, that when you talk about the appreciation of Kitty, because, because she is so well-loved and so mm. well-appreciated for how good she is now, you forget that perhaps there was a period of time where she was already you know, being that good that people didn't quite... Yeah, well, that's what I felt. I found it really frustrating. So, because she does work so hard, like she just, like she doesn't want, it's not, it's wrong to say she doesn't want the attention because she does want the attention, but her whole focus is just how can I make this better just all the time. And she does the same show for three years and just constantly makes it better. Like it's just different. It's better every night incrementally because if she doesn't get a laugh every 10 seconds, she goes back and adjusts it. So, and even when she filmed her DVD recently, I think she told you about how she did one and it was just a total disaster. She sort of got stuck in her own head a little bit and was just so focused on making the jokes better on the night that there was one point we were watching side of stage and she got to the end of a joke and seemed, appeared to forget the punchline. It was really weird. I've never seen her do that. And afterwards we said, what, what happened then? She said, oh, I didn't forget the punchline. I was just trying to think of a better punchline. It's like, right, so you've done this show 300 times and <laughs> you are still trying to think of a better punchline. Like, uh, Kitty and I spoke on the podcast about the DVD recording, but um, the, the second podcast, because uh, famously the, the first one. Uh, Which was why you're so worried about the crackle. Was lost. Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to have the Flanagan curse. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I am such a, a great admirer of, of Kitty's, like, you know, probably to a level that I couldn't say to her because it would make her feel uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, but I am, when uh, she sent me, when you, you guys came and saw the, the Will Eagle show and she sent me a message and she sent me a, a message that had some professional feedback in it mm. that was complimentary and I of any review I got for that show, of anything that I, like it was to me the greatest thing that had happened with that show was Kitty saying that she'd liked it <laughs> and her expression of why she'd liked it. Yeah. You know, I won't reveal it, but it was, <laughs> it was just one of those things that to me was, was very special. And 
And then when we lost the episode of the podcast, I was genuinely a bit scared and embarrassed and like terrified to tell you. Do you know what I mean? Like I actually <laughs> did feel like that. And it was o- only uh, after we bonded uh, sharing the story of her shitty gig when she was filming her DVD <laughs> backstage at, um, uh, I think it was the European uh, Beer Cafe, Thursday Night yeah. Comedy. Her and I had a, a a great laugh about filming DVDs and whatever that I, I hit her up to do the podcast again. Yeah. And she told me when we were having that backstage conversation that, uh, you know, she knew that she wasn't going to use it. She knew yeah. that, you know, it just happened to be the, the worst night of the run was the night when they had the cameras yeah. on and we spent... I think an hour that night talking about all our series on what works and what doesn't work. And, but my favorite bit of it, she said this uh, to me, she goes, I knew I'd have to explain it to everyone, but I knew I didn't have to explain it to Penny because (laughs) essentially once she'd walked off stage, you were like, well, I guess she's not using that one then. (laughs) (laughs) And I had had this weird thing. Like I, it was really contagious. Like her, her fear and just sort of spiraling into this weird space was really contagious and so I had come out and sung like Beaker from the Muppets. <laughs> like this weird, this weird thing happened with my throat where it just constricted and the noise that came out of me was like nothing I have ever heard before come out of me. Like I'm usually pretty confident with my singing voice. I'm just like nothing phases me. I can do this. And I sang like Beaker. And as I was singing, I just thought, well, I don't have to worry because she's not going to use it anyway. <laughs> Just view. Just look on her face as she was performing. I could just see. Uh, but you've refilmed now. The Parramatta shows have happened, right? Yes, and yes. it went very well. Went very well. Yeah. And two shows, right? Two, yeah, just yeah. one for safety. <laughs> yeah. so, which is always how you should do it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. So writing now. So you write. You you're writing a lot these days. You've written a book that's out now, but you, that's a six year project in some yeah. ways. Um, uh, what's your day-to-day when it comes to writing and creativity? Um, if I've got something that I'm working on, I do try to just work on it every day, even if it's just for an hour in the morning. So I usually write in the morning because that's when, you know, you so that you don't procrastinate. So you just go to your desk, just give it a go, see if you can get 500 words out. And then sometimes you'll just keep going all day and you'll get really sucked into it. And sometimes it just doesn't work. So you just move on to something else. So it is a try and write every day process for me. Do you, what's your concentration like? Are you a social media person? Are you easily distracted by things when you're writing? Do you have a method of like turning everything off or when you're in it, those things aren't attracting your attention regardless? Yeah, I'm pretty easily distracted and Facebook is a real distraction for me. Um, so I just, I try to just hit a word count. So I try not to look up until I've hit say 500 words, but yeah, there's so many distractions now, which you just didn't have before. But I remember like speaking of social media, I remember being really addicted to my answering machine in the same way, like coming home and hoping there would be messages for me. Did you, did you experience that or is that just weird? No, I think that was there the was same a, impulse there of, was an excitement of like yeah. that, that light flashing, which is ironic now because if anyone leaves me a message, by the way, this is a public <laughs> shout out. If you leave me a message on my mobile phone, I do not, not listen, listen to, it. to it. Never going to listen to it. It takes I up too much time. I will push number five, erase <laughs> message and clean it out. If it's important, send me a text. <laughs> That's right. Send me a text. Send me a text. But yeah, I just remember that impulse from my answering machine of, being addicted to, 
if I go out for a couple of hours, someone might call me and there might be a message for me. So it's a similar kind of impulse. But yeah, I'm not, I mean, I don't, I just, I'm a social media uh, voyeur. I don't um, inhabit the space, but I do look at what other people are doing. What What is it that you're most fascinated by? On social media? Well, just in general, what is it that like if, if I was going to, yeah, when you're searching out things that you're interested in, what, what normally are they? Do you mean on social media or generally in I life? mean, answer it however you want to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably the inside of other people's heads and what's going on inside them. And what, what are you hoping to find? What are you most interested in that motivates people? Their flaws and their insecurities and their humanity. So I love, um, you know, I was saying how my songwriting was always very negative. I really love that kind of songwriting that just, and any kind of writing or art that involves a pound of the person's flesh. I, I don't like things where people are sort of a bit removed from it and they're just, you know, some writers, when you read a book, you feel like they're just moving dolls around on a, on a, in a dollhouse. They're not like right down there in it. So, yeah, I'm looking for a pound of flesh, I guess, is the easiest way to say it. Is that uh, weird? No, no, no. I think there's, I mean, look, you know, my, the, my fa possibly my favorite song of all time is Johnny Cash's version of Nine Inch Nails Hurt. And it's because oh. that song itself feels like Trent Reznor put every, like yes. everything about him into that song. But then to hear it sung by Johnny Cash, who, who is, feels like he's lived every moment of that song. Yes. It's, I mean, that to me, you know, is a, just a joyous piece of music because of like I've I've sat and listened to that in the dark and cried and <laughs> yeah you know, and just felt you know and just said well this is one of my favorite songs because of what it yeah what it does to me yeah so I understand that no I understand do you think that sometimes in society that you know we have this world I mean you talk about children like there's this real um I I imagine if I were a parent that I would want to protect my children from all the terrible things that happen in your life, that that would be my natural instinct. Yeah. I'm a bit of a protector. Yet so many of the moments that make life spectacular are those terrible, sad, horrible yeah. moments. So, you know, as a parent, how do you, what's, what's your view of how you balance those things? Um, it's pretty difficult because I am, I think I just have to detach from it a little bit because I don't, I've got three boys and I think particularly with boys, you have to just let them um, make their own mistakes and you don't want to mollycoddle them. Um, but I was recently in Perth with Kitty and my ex-husband was in Hobart on a holiday and we had left my 16, our 16 year old twins alone for one night. You know, what can happen? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it's only one night. What could go wrong? A couple of 16-year-old twin boys. I can yep. imagine a few things that could happen. You know, they're pretty trustworthy. Anyway, I get a call after the show. I'm standing at the merch desk with Kitty and it's my ex-husband. He says, okay, don't panic. Everyone's okay. <laughs> okay. That's a great way to start. Um, but Alex has broken his leg in two places and he's been taken to the hospital in an ambulance. Like that is probably one of the worst phone calls you can get as a parent. I'm six hours away. Like I'm the furthest I can be. I, it was just sickening. 
And so luckily I just got on, I was able to get on the red eye. So I was there by morning. But the fact that I wasn't there when it happened just kills me. I can't get over it. It just fucking kills me. So, and I've got my kids, some people really judge me for this, but I track them so that I know where they are. I know, look at your face. But <laughs> it's a really... I would be a terrible poker player, by the way. <laughs> It's a really, I cannot tell you how common it is. Like just so that you know that they're safe. You know, I just, I cannot sleep if I don't know they're safe. It's horrific. So, and they know, like we did a deal where they wanted Spotify um, premium. And I said, I will give you Spotify premium and I will pay for it if you always let me track your location. So they agreed to it. So they know I'm tracking them. Um, less, that helps. Less hor- is my face saying less horrified now? <laughs> Um, no, you just become a <laughs> lunatic. No, no, no. I understand that. Like, I, I mean, mean, you would track your dog. Like, if your dogs could get out of your house and wander mm. around by themselves, you would want to track them, wouldn't you? There is no way you wouldn't want to know where they were. Yeah, I know. But like, I also make the dogs shit on the lawn. I wouldn't <laughs> make my kids do that. You know, like there are different rules for dogs and children. Is my point. I would kick my children out of my bed a lot earlier than I've kicked the dogs out of the bed. If 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 my kid was seven and was still sleeping in the bed every night, I'd be worried. But the dog, I'm fine with that. Sure. Um, do you have pets as well? Are you a pet person, or do you? Um, no. We had a like we had a dog, and then I got divorced, and my husband, uh, ex husband, mm. took the dog. I wasn't unhappy about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love dogs, yeah. but I just don't want to have to look after one. Okay. Because I've got three kids to look yeah. after, I can barely keep them alive. I mean, one of them, you know, broke his leg in two places. Not your fault. You're away. Just showed how necessary um, you are. Honestly. Anyway. <laughs> uh, twins is interesting. Mm. It was interesting. Yeah. Did you, uh, I mean, obviously you don't know when it's they're conceived that they're going to be twins, no. but where do you, when do you find out that they're twins? Um, I found out at the second ultrasound because I missed the, they were my, that was my second pregnancy. So I've already got an older single son. Um, and it was my second pregnancy. So you get a bit laissez-faire about, oh, do I need to go to the first ultrasound? Just skip that. And I kept saying to the doctor, you know, I feel like I'm really big. Like, I feel like my stomach's really big. Like, do, you, do I look big to you? And she, oh, no, it's just the second pregnancy. You know, your stomach yeah. muscles pops out, blah, blah, blah. And then so the second ultrasound, which is at about 19 weeks, I think, I was lying there. And usually the radiologists, they're really disinterested. Like, they're mm. quiet. They couldn't give a shit. Yeah. You know, they do it every day. Who cares? Here we pregnant? go. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh, Here know. we go. Yeah. It's a baby. Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, all of all humanity of... have had them. Oh, That's why we're still here. Whatever. Blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> and she was all of a sudden, she was really interested. And she said, oh, is this your first ultrasound? And I thought, That's weird. Why is she so interested? Mm. And I said, yes. And she said, you're having twins. And I just was appalled. And then I looked up and I realized that I was looking at the screen. I'd been looking at it for a while and there I realized what I'd been looking at was two heads, but I hadn't sort of, Mm. and I was just appalled and I just thought that is just terrible. And then she said, you should, (laughs) one of them was in a bad position. So I needed to walk around to get him in a good position. So she said, you should just go for a walk and come back. Um, And I went for a walk and I went outside the hospital and something clicked and I walked outside and went oh my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And all of a sudden all these endorphins came in and I was just really excited and happy about it. So, but it was pretty difficult. Did you have an attitude? I'm always interested when it, when it's twins. Did you, like, 
were you one of those like parents who was like great twins? I'm going to dress them together. They're going to be best friends. <laughs> like, do you know I mean? like that sort of thing. Or was mm. it the other way where you're like, nope, I've got to make sure that they both know that they have their own unique personal identities and blah, blah, blah. Well, it was kind of taken care of for me because one, when they came out, one was, um, one is olive skinned with dark hair and brown eyes. And the other one is blonde, like white blonde with blue eyes. So they were just so physically different just right from the get-go. I knew I wouldn't have to worry about it. But I did want to dress them the same when they were babies. Yeah. Like, that's fun. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but my kids were all vomiters, so um, it was really hard to keep the matching outfits coordinated because mm. they would just vomit on themselves and they always had – it was just horrific. Uh, I'm always fascinated this with I, – I, like, I understand you just adapt. I, I, I grew mm. – I never would have imagined that, I, you know, I'd be happy picking up dog shit or, like, cleaning up the <laughs> – like, you would, you adapt, right? You yeah. just get used to it. I'm one of those people who is a, a sympathetic vomiter. Like, so I can't even watch it on TV, like on South Park. (laughs) On South Park, when they vomit, I have to look away from the screen because it makes me want to vomit. Like, were you ever icky around, like, you know, those sort of things? Was was parenthood something that you found daunting or was it just something you were like, well, this is just all part of it? Um, In that regard, I mean, I'm I'm sure there was a whole bunch of daunting things that happened afterwards. Oh, so you mean the the, bodily excretions? Yeah, yeah, just the general grossness of it. I mean, it's always disgusting. I mean, you do adjust to it. But I do remember when, you know, toilet training twins was just horrific. And I remember one time, one of them, I don't know, I don't know how it happened, but he just pooed (laughs) all over the carpet. Like he was running around just pooing as he was running in his bedroom. And I just remember, I just gloved up, you know, I put on some rubber gloves and I was just picking poo out of the carpet, just crying, just going, how did my life come to this? (laughs) Like just going, this is just, and you do in, like when you're a parent, you do think this phase that we're in now is going to last forever. Like you forget it will pass. And, and with the newborn twin phase, I remember just thinking, that's it. I've, I've ruined my life. I have ruined my life. I am never going to sleep again. This is horrific. And this is how it's going to be. And you sort of forget they will grow up and, you know, once they're toddlers, it's terrific because you've just got, you know, they just play with each other and, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I can't remember who it was who said it to me the other day, but they were talking about, you know, parenting and that somebody was worrying about the fact that their kid um, wasn't walking yet. And, and I just remember them saying, mate, if you look around society, not a lot of people just crawling around. <laughs> Eventually they'll work it out. Yeah. Don't stress like, so much. I, like most, I think I think like, it's good. Unless there's some actual issue, yeah. it's fine. They, yeah. Some of them walk really soon. Some of them walk later. <laughs> they all walk. <laughs> so, so true. Oh, that's Gary, mate. Never learn how to walk. That's the crawl around the office. Just didn't pick it up. It's like toilet training. You do get really yeah. obsessed and go, oh my God, yeah. what if like, you know, what if he ends up in uni and he yeah. still isn't toilet trained? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Seems to be something we have to teach them to not yeah. crap their pants. Oh, like, that's Phil. That he's possible? a genius, but his mum still has to take him potty. So, I mean, it is weird that you have to teach them not to crap their pants. Yeah. Like I did, I found that like that just. I think every parent goes, "Come on, like, why do you want it jammed up against your bum, like, like a paddy? Like, because kids who are toilet training will mm. sit in their poo rather than." Sorry, is, is it too graphic? Is it because <laughs> they've no never known anything else, though? Right? Like, if you've if you've spent your life sitting in your own poo, you don't know <laughs> that there's a you don't know there's a different option. I've heard that there's something Freudian about it that uh, you don't want a piece of you to fall away from you. <laughs> so you yeah, where are you taking tiny that? Tiny. I'm only tiny. <laughs> How am I ever going to get as big as you <laughs> if you keep taking bits of me away? No, no, this is mine, mate. 
you this is, this is mine. You won't be touching it. Yeah. I'm going to sit on it so yeah. you can't get to it. It's mine now. <laughs> um, anyway. Did uh, being a parent, um, I, well, I always ask on this podcast, what do you think happens when we die? So I'll ask you that. What do you think happens when we die? I, it's only just occurred to me in the last sort of five years that, because <laughs> are you Catholic? Uh, no, I was raised. Uh, I was raised Church of England, oh. so barely a religion, right? You know, so, Anglican. It's just the. That's not a religion. It's like you know, it's, it's like, like hey, Catholic. here's the gist of Jesus. Yeah, you haven't been fucked up, like but no, person. or fucked. So the good news is, <laughs> worked <laughs> up, down, sideways. None of it. The Anglicans weren't so into that. They were just like, <laughs> do you like cake on a Sunday? We'll have a street saw. How do you How do you feel about slice? <laughs> Come to church, sing a couple of songs. Yeah. Um, well, see, it's only just occurred to me that there is no God in the last five years. I really hung on to that for a long time. And I actually made an announcement at dinner with my kids because they, I sent them to a Catholic school, which was a stupid idea. I shouldn't have done that. Um, so I thought they had maybe been indoctrinated a little bit by Catholicism. So I just wanted to knock that on the head. And I said over dinner, do you know what, everybody, I've got an announcement to make. It's come to my attention. There is no God. And they just looked at me and went, right, then you've just figured that out, have you? Like they <laughs> they honestly just went, what is wrong with you yeah. that you've only just figured that out? But it took me a really long time to deprogram from being Catholic and just assuming that there was something out there. So I think when we die, there's nothing, which I, that, I don't like that because I just think this whole consciousness we've got going on is really complex and interesting. How can it just not exist anymore? And how can it exist in the first place without some yeah. divine intervention that yeah. you know, creates this miracle of life that we are? How can it just be snuffed out? It's terrible. Like I would like the next life to just be that I could just be a floating consciousness because I just think all the physical stuff is where the problems are. You know, dragging this thing around and it just gets worse and worse as you get older. If we could just be a consciousness, I'd be really happy. I mean, so much of what, you know, obviously motivates us to, you know, often to bad decisions. Yes. It tends to be the physical thing in which we're kept, right? Yes. You know, the desires of the flesh, if you will. Yes. Yeah, get rid of that. I just want to be a floating... I think we'd be better people. Exactly. I've just got time to think (laughs) now that I'm a floating consciousness. Don't worry about what I look like and... Yeah. Oh, my kids aren't shooting anywhere. They're just floating consciousness. <laughs> Don't have to worry about toilet training, exactly. people breaking their legs, you know? I mean, but is, well, is there some view that that's where I guess this next step of evolution might be heading, which is certainly the tech giants and the super mm. rich and these sort of people who want the idea that they might be able to upload some version of their consciousness into mm. the machine, right? So yeah. you take out the your need of there being a physical body. It's replaced either by being some sort of AI you know, program or some sort of physical manifestation of technology. And therefore, you know, you do, you do become a version of that floating consciousness and you live forever. Well, when you put it that way, I don't like it. I don't like the idea of uploading to somewhere and tech companies being in charge of it. I don't, also don't like the idea of living forever. You know, some people really want to live forever. Oh, so tell me why. Okay. So I also don't like it, but I would love to know why you don't like it. Oh, because it's exhausting. Like, yeah. it's exhausting being human. And I'm like, already done now. Like, I <laughs> really done. am. I'm good. I'm like, I've done heaps of shit. 
to, if it ended now, <laughs> to be honest, everyone would be like, oh, well done, mate. Not bad. Yeah, except for like having kids. I do think like yeah. when I'm on a plane and it starts getting bumpy, I think, well, do you know what? I've had a good run. You know, I just let's just check out now. It's fine. Um, I don't know. It's just exhausting. And the more you know, like the harder it gets, I reckon. Like your 20s is so easy because you don't know anything and you think you know everything. So you think you're bulletproof and that is like a really fun place to be. But it's kind of as you get older and you know more and you see the same patterns and mistakes being repeated over and over again in politics and, you know, in the whole world, it's really exhausting because you want to say to people, don't do that. I've seen what happens when you do that and no one listens to you. I think that's what I don't like about getting older. You know more, but no one, people are less inclined to listen to you. That's why old people start to talk more loudly in the hope <laughs> that people will listen to them. Um, do, do you mind if we have a pause just while I have Is a bathroom, bathroom break? break? Yep. Only another three hours to go. So <laughs> We've covered death. Yeah, parenting, poo. Well, we're not. We, we haven't covered death yet. We're, we're, oh, okay, we're just great. in the process of covering death mm. uh, because. Uh, the what happens when we die mm. question comes with the next question, which is how much you think about death. Is death something that is present in your mind? Is it a, are you, do you think about your own death? Are you like, you know, is death a, a topic that takes much of your thought? It's a, to- uh, I don't think about the actual physical manifestation of dying, but I do think about, when I go, I I want to make sure I leave something behind. I want some sort of, and this is just so egotistical, but I just want to leave some sort of artistic legacy. And I'm just, it would kill me if I didn't. And so, and do you? Think I think you I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, you, you you've you know had a successful music career in your own mm. right. Well, I mean. In that you made, I'd made music, it, yeah. and you made music that people really liked, and that will live on, and that well, exists. Well, that's what I hope. Like you hope that it will. Like I don't like the idea of like, at the moment, content has just become for the sake of content. Like we're just producing so much content, and there's so much pressure to just keep producing it. Everyone's just mainlining it. You know, you're listening to 50 million podcasts a day, and people read a book and go, "Okay, well, whatever next," and just read the next book. Whereas I just would like a little bit more. You know, like the Great Gatsby. It's just people are still reading that and loving it, and they read it three times over. And I would just like to produce something that has that sort of longevity. I don't know if I ever will, but that's my—that's what I would like to do. But the other thing is that you don't know if you already have, because I know. the mystery of the longevity thing is that things can often become much more loved, you know, after the fact. You know, throughout history, there's been examples of things yes. being. You know, this thing became popular 20 years after it was released or 50 years after it was released. Mm. So you don't even know that something you may have already done. I can only hope. Surviving Hell <laughs> might be the next, you know, catcher it in the road. It would be. You know? Well, you don't know. Yeah. I mean, the director's version, obviously, with the flashbacks. <laughs> the this, this version, I don't know. But the, <laughs> the flashback version, they're studying in university now because of the Freudian <laughs> tones and it's insight into because the Freudian nature of flashback. <laughs> but... So that idea of leaving something artistically important. Yeah. 
So I, I get your concept firstly. Sometimes I get messages from people who say they listen to the podcast at double the speed. And that's to do with that. You know, they want to fit in all this consuming. That is terrible. Of, they do it on purpose. On purpose. Because they want to like, you know, so if, I, if I'm going to bang on for an hour and a half, they want to get it done in 45 minutes. <laughs> that's because that's how long they've got. And I'm like, oh, great. It's like the chipmunks having yeah. a conversation about life and death. <laughs> so what do you think about this? What? <laughs> that's you know, what I like, mean. Like people are just kind of consuming it. What's like, consuming rather than uh, enjoying it at the pace and momentum yeah. that it was created. Absorbing it properly yes. and getting something out of it. And yeah, I don't like that about. Like, it's really good that there's so much content at the moment, but yeah, it's just become for the sake of it, which I really, I don't like the way that's moving. Like what, what has happened now or been produced now that will be remembered in 20 years? That's what I wonder. Like, are we still able to even produce things that will have longevity if we're consuming it so quickly and not thinking about it? And are things that are exciting and important and feel like the biggest thing in the world now because i mean okay so to use this example uh at one stage and this is how uh, not up to date my popular cultural references are <laughs> i'm going to reference gangnam style do you remember gangnam <laughs> style yeah yeah of so I, do. It, it, I remember when gangnam style <laughs> i like the way you're pronouncing that sigh <laughs> <laughs> and his hit song gangnam style mm. Uh, became the most watched video on the internet. I don't know if it is anymore, but at the time it was the most viewed yeah. clip in the history of, you know, clips being viewed. And I wonder what that means, you know, in that, does that make it a, you know, artistically, culturally significant thing that oh, more people, I, I mean, not. more people have consumed size Gangnam style than have consumed you know, much of the greatest music that has ever been played. So where does that then rank Psy <laughs> and his hit Gangnam Style, uh, you know, in that, like you said, in that being remembered? Yeah. I hope it doesn't rank him anywhere. Like I hope all that YouTube stuff just gets sort of remembered for what it was, which was just content and that people who would doing real stuff will be the ones that rise to the top. Because I think that does happen. Like the interesting thing about um, the internet and about digital is the authentic content eventually rises to the top because it's all about what's being clicked on and what people stay on for the longest, what people see as useful. So eventually the authentic content that is really useful actually rises to the top of a, um, a search, like a Google search. So I hope that's an indication that the real stuff will rise to the top. I hope. What? Uh, yeah. What's the value in making something that will? Is it is the value in making something that will be artistically remembered? Mm. Is it about legacy? Is it about the idea that that prevents you dying? You know, in that like you know you your work lives on. So you know. You don't die in that sense. Is it about the idea that you yourself make something? Because what? How do you judge whether that thing is, yeah, you know, that great work of art? Yeah, you know, how do you yourself, mm. you know, how do you separate the public acceptance of something mm. like Size Gangnam Style being the most viewed <laughs> thing of all time versus here's this great work of you know artistic work that I have left. How do those things separate from each other? 
how do that in your mind what differentiates one from the other I think it comes back to the pound of flesh that I talk about. If there's a pound of flesh in something, I think, if it means something to the person who created it, it will mean something to the people who are consuming it. And I think there's that, you know, market-driven content versus, I guess you'd call it artistic content maybe, content that people are creating because they need to say something and they've got something to say that really means something to them versus... I want to hit the mark, so I'm going to write to the market. So I don't know. That's a very complex question, though. Um, I was. It just occurred to me we had uh, Mick Thomas on the show, um, on the radio show I do on my weekdays, and uh, we had him in to sing his song Father's Day. Oh, great. Because it was Father's Day. Um, now, if I wanted to have an off-air conversation with people about, I would have thought, we haven't really read all the the lyrics to that song. It's about a single dad who sees his kid on a Saturday. It's not about the, yeah, the yeah, once yeah. a year Father's Day. That's but true. anyway, whatever, guys. Let's, <laughs> it's nice to have Mick Thomas in. It's a beautiful song. I'm happy for him to sing it. Let's not think too much about the connection. Yeah. But uh, Mick is the only person I've ever written a fan letter to because back uh, in his weddings, parties, anything days, he wrote a song that I just particularly responded to in a way that I just needed to let him know. I just needed to ring him, uh, uh, to uh, write a letter to him. Uh, It was a song, uh, it's called For a Short, For a Short Time, For a Short, For for a Short Time, I think is the the name of the song. I'm Mm. terrible with song titles, but (laughs) uh, essentially um, about, yeah, uh, there's a, a one of the lyrics is, tell me how long is a short time? Is it longer than an hour? Is it? a bit less than a weekend, is it shorter than a year? Is it the time it takes to not complete your business with a person? And I just, there was at the, there was a whole bunch of things in it, but I love that idea of going, it, it, about the measurement of the time it takes to not complete your business with a person was, yeah. was you know, something that really I responded to at the time. For me, that was his great, piece of art that that song every time I hear it it sticks with me it yeah. has a certain emotion to me now it's not it's not the biggest weddings parties anything song it's not the song that you know that people get him to play at father's day or yeah you know come in on Monday and sing Monday's experts you know like <laughs> <laughs> uh but to me it is yeah to me so I guess what I'm trying to get to is this idea that Sometimes the fact that a lot of people listen to something or consume something or mm. watch something can be very uh, separated from how much impact that thing has on an individual or a person. That to some people, your great work of art has already been made. Yeah. And it's that thing of sometimes songs, when when you have a big hit with a song, it does just become part of the sort of cultural wallpaper. And then I remember when we used to tour, we would tour with Paul Kelly a lot. And he writes these beautiful heartfelt songs and we would go and support him at the snow at Falls Creek. And you just, like, the quality of the audience was just just people, big buff heads coming in. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Just not really appreciating those songs for what they were just because they've heard it on the radio and it's catchy and they just want to hear the catchy songs that... And I remember thinking, oh, that's almost a terrible place to get to as an artist where your song is just the wallpaper. But then he's pushed through to the other side where his songs have become, you know, the the legacy. You know, everyone sort of connects with them. But at that point when he was just pushing through to radio, it was like, oh, I don't know if I want that, you know, to just become 
we just want to hear that one song. If you could imagine, yeah, magic wand time, you know, mm. and maybe this is too intimate to reveal to people, but if you imagine what that great work of artistic, you know, merit, this 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 great project, this great thing that you have left in you mm. that you're going to get out, um, wh- what is it? What do you think it is? Or what ideally would it be if everything went right? Oh, I'd love it to be a song, but I don't think it would be a song. Um, yeah, if I could wave my magic wand, magic wand, I would probably like to just write one more really great song that just lasted the distance and that everyone remembered and connected to in that way that everyone connects to Don't Dream It's Over or, you know, it's this beautiful cultural moment when they sing that song and everyone has their own story for why they love it. So I would, yeah, I would love to write that kind of song and leave that I think um I ask uh, this often and I'm interested to hear what you think which is when people speak of you what would you like that they were saying about you um (laughs) that I'm considerate I think I would like to be considerate and I think the reason I say that is because I know that essentially I'm quite selfish so I would like for people to think that I am a considerate caring person because it takes a lot of effort for me to be considerate and caring so yeah so you'd like some you'd like some acknowledgement of it when you are and you'd like other people to think that you are (laughs) I want it to be recognised when I make that yeah. effort. <laughs> what is your uh, greatest weakness, do you think? Oh, I've got so many. Um, just off the top of my head, my greatest weakness is I can't take criticism, just of any kind, um, whether it's creatively or personally. And my my sort of... My immediate reaction is, whoa, everyone hates me. Everyone hates me. Everyone hates me. So I guess I'll just go and sit in a room and not come out. So that, I think that's my biggest weakness. Uh, I mean, but you've chosen to work in fields and do things that, you know, you constantly are going to have to come up against Mm. criticism. So what's that relationship like? And have you developed ways of dealing with it? Or are you still, do you still find that you get that gut? visceral reaction to criticism that is still there I always get that gut reaction I just I can't change that and I just have to move through it to the other side and I kind of am conscious of the fact that I can move through it to the other side but that's why my philosophy has become just do the work because it's uh you know just sit down and do the work like don't worry about criticism or you know the fact that everyone hates you just sit down and create something and everything will be fine I think that's the way I cope with it yeah I mean I constantly imagine as people who listen to this podcast will know that a lot of the time when I talk about the criticism, criticisms I get for this podcast, they're literally just things I've imagined in my mind that people <laughs> criticize the podcast for. They're not things that I've seen at all, but I met all these people who have all these issues and I realize that they're just the issues that I have yeah. myself. Yeah. Uh, but I think that if I have a strength, my strength has been to, um, that I am the person who is most critical of all my work, but I don't yeah. let it stop me doing the work. The, yeah, 
That's like, a big thing for creative people, I think, to sort of have enough self-reflection to criticize, like to be critical of what you're doing so that you can make it better, but not let that tip you into just not doing it at all. And I think that's a really hard thing to keep that balance. In it fact, is. I think earlier this year, the reason I'm having a bit of a break from some of that is because I think I tipped too far over into the, I just was so, like I was being so self-critical in my real life and going through some things that were adding to the intensity mm. of that self-criticism. And then like professionally, like, you know, on top of it, me just starting to worry about things like aging and yeah. the end of your career and, you know, really, yeah, that present feeling of new generations coming through that I couldn't yeah. be more excited about, but suddenly feeling old, you know, yeah. like old in my career, old in my life, you know, and just seeing these people who were what I imagined I was and yeah. suddenly realizing, oh, fuck, I'm that old guy now. <laughs> that uh, old guy who hangs around. Yeah. What happened? Oh, God. But see, why can't that be like, why can't we sort of value that more? That's what bugs me about the whole physical piece of everything is that if you were just a consciousness, like everyone would just, <laughs> In our perfect everyone scenario. Would just appreciate yeah. that you had accumulated all this wisdom and you were like this really great consciousness. Like they wouldn't be looking at the package of it. That, yeah. Okay. So there'd still be a bit of consciousness over in the corner going, <laughs> I should have been the, I should have been the king consciousness. I never got the opportunities <laughs> as a consciousness. <laughs> My body was actually my strength and it's been taken out of the equation. This is unfair. Um, the idea of aging, uh, how have you dealt with that? I hate it. Don't like it. It's very hard for women. Like I don't want to pull rank on you, but it is harder for women than it is for men because you're so valued on how you look and any compliment you get is usually a around how you look and even on Facebook, if you put up a photo of yourself, oh my God, you look so beautiful. And I was just thinking, well, why does that matter? And I appreciate the compliment, but it bothers me that that's the first thing we go to, that we're so visual. Um, I don't, I don't like aging at all. I don't like it. Um, what have you, uh, do you think there's a specifically Australian aspect to how we deal with aging? Do you think there's a, like a worldwide thing? It seems like there's some other cultures that have more respect for yes. aging than we do in Australia. What cultures do you think they are? I mean, the, the, well, Japanese immediately I comes was to say mind. Japan, yeah, yeah uh, but I even think if you look at, just to use an example, like mm. there's a whole bunch of people who are running for president of the US at the moment yes. who are in the 60s, their 70s. The idea that in Australia that we would have a politician in charge of one of our parties who was running for election the first time and they were in their mid 60s to their mid 70s which some of them are is i mean i can't even imagine how people they wouldn't trust them so you think we're more focused on it here than even America we are more is. focused in on youth in australia i believe than almost anywhere in the world and i have a bit of a pet theory which is that it has to do with how ashamed we are about how we've like that we ignore the real rich history, long history of our country, the indigenous history. Mm. And we only concentrate on the last 200 years because yeah. there was a lot of uncomfortable questions before that. So as a culture, like the white Australian culture, I mean, you know, mm. the, the modern Australian culture, we have decided that history is not important because we don't have history. Yeah. You know, we don't have big old buildings. We don't have these like yeah, great long lines of culture that we rely on. What we rely on, we're new. We're fresh. Right. We're young. We're a, you, Australians all Upstarts. let us rejoice. We are young yeah. and free. 
And so we concentrate on that idea of youth. Yeah. It's rare that you, I mean, Home and Away has a few Alf Stewarts and Irene's, <laughs> but it's pretty much, you know, it's pretty much teenagers, you know, out of high school looking yeah. hot and whatever at the beach. Yeah. And then a big gap until you're Alf and Irene. Yeah. That to me feels like how we look at, you know, that in Australia, I think we do have an obsession with youth that perhaps more disproportionate than anywhere else. Yeah, I think it does come from being a relatively young culture as well, because we kind of pride ourselves on being upstarts and... Yeah, I hadn't thought about that about politicians though, because to me, if the older you are as a politician, you've got more knowledge and aren't you better at it? But then there's the argument that you need the fresh ideas from young people as well. So I'm not sure where I stand, because I love Bernie Sanders, but he's pretty old, you know? Like, what if he dies in office? Mm. There's that. I don't know. Well, they just put someone else in. I mean, you know. The Americans have lost a few presidents over the run. Yeah, they've shot a few. Yeah, I mean, why can't they shoot this one? Like, but, can you I believe mean, that? But it doesn't matter. I'm not sure you can say that. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> don't know, you ever don't know what your that? plans are to travel to the US, <laughs> but I have a visa, like, and I don't really need a strip search of customs. So many, like, yeah. just someone have a go. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not sure you can say that, but I. Uh... When I'm, you know, when I'm, who I'm calling you when I get red flagged at customs and I've got some DEA agent's again. finger up my ass and I'm oh, like, Flanagan! <laughs> uh, so um, uh, I was asking about uh, the next generation uh, in relation to that. So you've got kids, you've mm. you've got to look at how the state of the world is. How do you yeah. feel about the world you know, they're the age that you were when you were making music and yeah. going out and living those sort of lives. Like compared to what you were like at that age in the world that they live in now, what's your level of optimism around it? I never think about that. I know a lot of people do. They're very much, you know, I've got to think about the world that we're leaving our kids. I never think about that for some reason. I'm just kind of too focused on keeping them alive now mm. <laughs> <laughs> and no one breaking a leg while I'm away. So um, I think they're pr my kids are much better with um, they're much better with their peers than I was. They're really good, like they're all boys, and they they have really nice female friends. They're much better at mixing with the opposite sex than I ever was, and much more uh, self assured about who they are than I ever was. So I'm happy about that. Um, I. We used to watch a TV show called Heroes, and Heroes is a superhero show. And uh, there was a villain in that show, and his capacity was he could go around to any of the other superheroes and kill them, and then take their power. So yeah. he would just get more and more powerful as he as he managed to suck out someone's you know superhero ability. Right. So considering that everyone in the world has some sort of ability, if you could steal oh. uh, one ability from somebody. What would you like that ability to be? Oh, that's such a big question because I'm going to choose something really trivial. Um, so I have a friend who is able to speak up about things when she doesn't like them without getting aggressive and without putting people off. So when she, if she walks into, a, say, a hotel and that something's not right about the room, she has the ability to go down to reception and just go, hey, do you know what? I don't like that room. Do you think maybe you could, you know, find me another room or, you know, without sort of getting all kind of worked up and putting people off and people just, you know, it's like open sesame. The world is her oyster. 
So I would love that ability to be able to speak up about things that are bothering me without being aggressive and combative. I think I would love that. I, I just like the ability to speak up against things that are bothering me. I find it incredibly difficult. Do you just not say anything? I just don't say anything. And I'm then a real do you just get you just stew on it? I, I can stew a bit. I've got better at not stewing. Right. But I have not got better at speaking up for myself. I think that often I my starting position is that my life is incredibly lucky and that I have quite a um I one of the hardest things I and one of the things that I've had to work on in therapy and, and with my friends is it feeling like I have the right to say that something's not right or to right. complain about something. I am very much a mustn't grumble. My life's worked out fine. Who am I to complain? Even when I am going through something that probably, you know, I, I do need help with or that I, you know, it, it is fair to me to, um, you know, be upset by, I have a problem being upset by those things. You right. Know? Yeah. I'm the opposite. Yeah, right. I'm just always complaining mm. and speaking up and just making a pest of myself. And people always say, why did you say that? Like, you shouldn't say it. So I'd love to be able to, yeah, have that ability to do it without putting people off. Yeah, you still want to do it. You just yeah. don't want to put people off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think... I definitely still want to complain, guys. I just I want, to be, want to complain. I want people to be cooler with me complaining. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly what I want. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, I asked about, um, uh, did I ask strengths and weaknesses? I asked, yeah. did, I only asked one though, didn't I? Did I ask both of them? You asked weaknesses. You yeah, didn't ask I didn't ask strengths. I knew I had half an uncompleted thought there. So, uh, greatest strengths. What do you believe it is? Um, I think it's kind of a strength and a weakness, but I have, uh, my greatest strength is probably empathy. So I can feel what it's like for another person and you can almost get a bit too tangled up in that sometimes. So, yeah, I think that's what it is. How much uh, emotional toll does being empathetic place on you? Because if you, you know, under, there can be an emotional weight that comes with, with being empathetic that it is that you not only have your own problems, but you mm. feel everybody else's problems as well. Yeah, there is a big, and I think maybe that's where my thing comes of, well, I have to speak up because I do get every now and then I go, well, what, what about my feelings? Why, why am I worrying about everybody else's feelings so much? I, you know, I was worrying about me. So yeah, maybe that's where that comes from. Uh, what's your favorite song? Oh, that's such a big question. I wish I knew you were going to ask me that. I don't normally ask it, but I just, I, I, as someone who writes songs, I was just interested in that perhaps you had a song that, you know, if you uh, needed to listen to a song over and over, what would that song be? Um, probably something by Crowded House. I'm going to say Nails in My Feet um, because I just love the just the emotional landscape of it and just the way he describes himself slipping into his own house and I can almost see it in my mind and that thing of all of a sudden everything, everyone wants something from him. And then Total Surrender, beautiful chorus. And last but not least, um, I have a time machine. I do not actually have a time machine. I need mm. to point that out for legal reasons. But <laughs> if I did, here are the rules of the time machine game. Uh, you get a return trip. 
you can go back to a moment in history and observe and change or change it. Mm. Um, or you can go back to a moment in your life and observe or change it. Now, I personally would prefer you answered both and tell me what you do historically and what you do personally, but you don't need to. You can answer it however you want to answer it. Um, historically, that's a big question. I mean, you'd have to go back in time and, and stop Hitler. Okay, let's say, let's say Is that... Is that too big? Because, well, well a, a lot of our problems now have stemmed from all of that, mm. from the fallout of everything. Too big. I've had a th I've had a theory uh, for a while that because the, the the debate is always you'd kill baby Hitler right like, do you kill baby Hitler? My idea is that you raise baby Hitler better. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. Yeah, right. Yeah, you just you know better role model for yeah, baby Hitler. Yeah, you don't Hitler. kill him. You just yeah. You, you know what? You encourage you his vegetarianism him. and his art, and you keep him away from politics. <laughs> just give him some love and yeah, care. Yeah, just channel That'll him in the right him. direction. He's got a lot of great energy and charisma. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just been channeled yeah. in the complete wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, let's take. Uh, you know, killing baby Hitler out of the equation. Is there oh, a moment in history Hitler. that you would like to observe or be at or try to change? Oh, there's just so many. Um, I just don't, I, I don't know because I am a bit obsessed with the fallout of World War Two. Okay. So, so all you want to do is kill baby I, Hitler. Yeah, I can't get past yeah. that. Like okay, it's, it's it's so many problems. If you're determined to kill baby Hitler, I'm, <laughs> I mean, look, it will also I mean, tick off your, him. what lasting legacy did you leave for yeah. humanity? I mean, I'm happy with your theory. I'll no. raise him, raise him better. Yeah, just raise him, him better. Raise him. Yeah. Hey guys, um, we've got a new kid. Uh, little Alf. Uh, I've come back from the past and we have a new brother. We're going to love him. i got four boys now. No matter what he does, <laughs> just love him. Not no matter what he does, we're trying to get him in a... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Put some boundaries in. We're going to put All some right. boundaries. How about your own life? You get to go back to a moment in your own life and change it or observe it. What would you do? Um. So... What I've been obsessing over recently because I'm working on something is uh, the falling out that I had with Julia, who was in Club Hoy with me, who was my first songwriting partner. We had this terrible falling out um, where the band broke up and we the friendship broke up as well and we just didn't speak to each other for 23 years. Like we did not speak a word to each other. And I would, and we have actually been looking at the moment where the friendship broke down, the fight that we had and both trying to figure out how we could have done it differently and kept the friendship together. And so that's what I would do. I would go back to that moment and handle that moment better and not be so combative, which is my weakness. Uh, the book is called Surviving Hell. That's the new thing that's yes. out. Um, uh, who's going to like this book? What's it? What's, uh, I mean, I've, I've read some of it, but I'm, this is for the audience. Mm. Um what, who is it for? Who do you imagine is the person who's going to, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much of the story because I think that so far, because I, I haven't read the whole thing yet, mm. but I've started and it, it feels like I did not know what I was up, up for going into it. And I'm very much enjoying it so far, but I don't want to give too much away. Give as, way, as much as way as you would like to, but what would you like to tell people about the book? Um, so it's about, it's essentially about the destination wedding from hell and a terrible in-law and it's about the terrible in-law is a father-in-law and he's a very toxic male energy. Um, I think, I like I thought it was a, a, a woman's book when I wrote it but I've been surprised how many men have really loved it as well 
So I don't know. I just think it's who's it for? Just anyone who I don't know. That's no. really hard. Well, no, I mean, you don't need to answer that in. It's for everyone. It's Available for everyone. All, all good bookshops. <laughs> 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 and so what's next uh, it's the question I hate being asked myself but know, I've asked it to you now because it's like isn't this enough you're like I just wrote oh, a book fuck, I've published a book I've years. done this interview <laughs> what the fuck Nick what's next but it feels like that you are in a creative space at the moment is that fair to say yeah I am I'm really enjoying writing and I've been working on something with Julia where we are going to do a memoir of the friendship that looks at like because I remember your, when you spoke to Andy Lee about that disagreement that you had and looking at that from both sides is so interesting. Like looking from a, at a falling out or whatever, what each person is thinking. Um, and we've been, we were working on it before that happened. But when we listened mm. to that, we went, wow, sounds, that's really. Sounds like it's based exactly on that, to be honest. <laughs> sounds like a clear breach of copyright. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we're definitely working was, on heaps before. It was my idea. Yeah. Um, no, we, so we've just been looking at writing something, you know. So you do one chapter from her, one chapter from me mm. about the same thing. So it's like a she said, she said thing about a terrible, you know, female falling out. Um, and it's been really interesting to look at how everyone perceives a moment differently. So that's what I'll be working on. Right, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. I really have had a great fun time talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been really fun. Like great. it's been yeah, a great laugh it. and you know, <laughs> and really fascinating. So I, I um thank you very much for doing the show. I really Thanks appreciate it. And uh you know, buy the book. Buy the book. Go and find some old music, listen to that. Yeah. Download me on iTunes, Download... give me some royalties. Exactly. <laughs> buy it. Don't Spotify it. <laughs> That's right. Spotify premium, yeah. but we'll have to track you. That's what it comes with. If you download on Spotify yeah. premium, um, you, can you have, have to, to send me in your, your details just so that we can, can track, track you. where you are. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs>